Matthew chapter 5 and verse 1. And seeing the multitudes, he went up into a mountain, and when he was set, his disciples came unto him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying. Now the rest of chapter 5 and 6 and 7 are what we know as the Sermon on the Mount. And you can flip through the pages to uh, verse 24 of chapter 7. Therefore, whosoever heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them, I will liken him unto a wise man which built his house upon a rock. And the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat upon that house, and it fell not, for it was founded upon a rock. And everyone that heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them, and doeth them not, shall be likened unto a foolish man which built his house upon the sand. And the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat upon that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. And it came to pass, when Jesus had ended these sayings, that the people were astonished at his doctrine, for he taught them as one having authority, and not as the scribes. You may be seated. It's not running now, my computer's on, my projector's not, I don't know if... Before I get into the message this morning, I would like to uh, take this opportunity to thank each of you who were involved in Summer Bible School this past week. Summer Bible School takes effort. I know you are busy, and you may wonder what you accomplished. But personally, I feel that uh, this week of Bible School gave us something to uh, get excited about, and uh, I personally was excited about it. The crowd that was here may have been a little more energetic than sometimes, but to me, that's good. Uh, to me, Bible school is about ministry. It's about reaching out to those in the community, and I compliment each of you who put effort into making that happen uh, this past week. And I want to encourage you to embrace that opportunity, the opportunity we have, and think now about next year and how you can get people involved from your neighborhood and so forth and ways that you can impact um, others with the message of the gospel. Speaking to the message today, you are familiar with Spartan races. And if this is a new term for you, a race is designed specifically to be extremely difficult. It's designed to press or to push the limits of a person's endurance and strength. Participants in a Spartan race need to move through a series of difficult challenges and obstacles. They may need to do things in the course of their race, like pull a sled full of rocks, a weighted sled, climb up ropes, climb over walls, run steep mountains or trails filled with boulders. They may, may need to do this while carrying a log or some other heavy weight. They may, may need to slog through thick mud or jump over fire or many other difficult obstacles. And a person who enters this race may not know beforehand what all the race will include. He only knows that it's going to be a challenge and he's going to enter it 
to try to overcome those challenges. Sometimes these races are held in a hot desert environment or perhaps in a cold mountainous region. And perhaps the most remarkable thing of all is that no one is required to do these races. The people who do them choose to do it voluntarily just because they want to see if they can accomplish it. The name, the Spartan race, the name comes from the Spartans who were citizens of Sparta, which was a city in ancient Greece. And the Spartans, back in ancient Greece, were known for sparing no effort in order to be the best soldiers around. And they willingly endured hardship in order to help them to be a better soldier. They were single-minded in their dedication to develop themselves physically and mentally and emotionally so that nothing could stop them. They would sacrifice nearly anything to help them reach their goal. Boys typically started training, entered training at the age of seven. They would be forced to sleep outside, endure cold and hunger, simply develop resistance to such hardships. And physical, uh, poor physical fitness or showing signs of cowardice were a tremendous disgrace and brought on severe ridicule. So even today, the name Spartan is synonymous with simplicity, fearlessness, and endurance. There was a saying during that time in Greece that one Spartan was worth several men from any other state. Now, this past week, I was reading a little bit about the Spartans, and I asked myself the question, what if? What if we as Christians would live like Spartans? What if we would live our lives with that level of commitment? What if we would sacrifice anything in order to be more effective as Christians? What if we would be willing to renounce anything that might stand in the way or distract us from being a better soldier of Christ? What if showing a lack of genuine Christian commitment would be the greatest disgrace we could imagine? What if... Sometimes we are willing to put our bodies through a lot in order to accomplish a physical goal, be it work, be it sport, or some other passion. What are we willing to sacrifice for the sake of following Jesus? What if we would take the words of Jesus literally when he says things like, If any man will sue thee at the law and take away thy coat, let him, thy cloak, let him have thy coat also. Or when he says, love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. What if we would take the words of Jesus literally when he says, lay not up for yourselves treasures on this earth, or take no thought for the morrow.
What if? All of these words of Jesus that I just read come from the Sermon on the Mount. And this sermon gives some of the most stringent conditions for Christian life that you will find anywhere. The Sermon on the Mount is not an eye-catching advertisement with glossy pictures and glowing testimonials. It's not a matter of inviting people to come on in and enjoy the party. This sermon portrays a life of sacrifice, a life of surrender, and a life of dependence. And the sermon calls for the disciples of Christ to live a Spartan life, a life in which you are willing to sacrifice now with an eye for what lies ahead. I'm planning to begin a series of sermons on the Sermon on the Mount. And the title of the sermon this morning is, What If? And I begin this series, I confess, with a certain amount of fear and trepidation. For one thing, this is the greatest sermon that was ever preached by the greatest man who ever walked the earth. And who am I to offer my comments on this sermon? And furthermore, as Christians... <clears throat> we tend to grow comfortable in our complacency. And we don't like to be stirred out of our comfort zone. In our Sunday school lessons, we're studying about the Israelites in Egypt. And it appears as though the Israelites came to a point where they developed uh, an acceptance. They accepted a degree of normalcy in Egypt with the conditions in which they were living. And when Moses came and began to stir things up, they started complaining and they came to Moses. And they said to Moses, may God judge you. Things are worse now than they were before. And they were ready to run him out of town. In Jesus' day, the Jews had, the, had accepted as well a degree of normalcy, of accepted norms. And when he stirred things up, they rejected him. You see, we don't like to be made uncomfortable. We don't like when the alarm clock rings and we need to crawl out of bed. We look for ways to downplay that which makes us uncomfortable. And the Sermon on the Mount, if taken at face value, will make us uncomfortable. And if I preach what the sermon teaches, I may be the next one to get run out of town. And another reason why I approach this with a certain degree of apprehension, is that many of the teachings in the Sermon on the Mount simply are not logical. To be honest, I'm not sure how to deal with them. Some of them are downright radical. And if I'm as radical in preaching as the Sermon on the Mount is in its content, you may tune me out forever, someone that's off his rocker. What do we do with the Sermon on the Mount? So the title of the message this morning is, What If? And this is simply an introduction to the sermon. I'd like to look at several aspects in overview. First of all, let's look at the context of the Sermon on the Mount. This sermon was preached, I believe, near the beginning of Jesus' ministry, and it was preached at a time of transition from the Old Testament to the New. And in a large sense, people were still living in Old Testament times. They were still living under the Old Testament law, and 
under the conditions of the Old Testament. And Jesus was introducing something new, something with which the people of his day were not yet familiar. We read the beginning of Matthew and say this is the New Testament. The people who lived in that time were not yet aware of what the New Testament meant. So this was a time of transition. And this sermon helps to introduce this new era. And the contrast to the Old Testament is great. I'd like to look at a few of those contrasts. The Old Testament is about Adam, while the New Testament is about Jesus. And that is clearly specified in the words from the Bible itself. In Genesis chapter 5, verse 1, near the beginning of the Old Testament, the scripture says directly, this is the book of the generations of Adam. Matthew 1.1 starts out, the book of the generation of Jesus Christ. So the Old Testament was about Adam and his descendants. The New Testament is about Jesus Christ and his spiritual descendants, the church. The Old Testament gives a story of Adam's family. And it describes the results of sin. Whereas the New Testament introduces the Jesus family. And it describes the results of growth. And it describes the birth and growth of the church. So the Old Testament is about Adam. The New Testament is about Jesus Christ. The Old Testament is a book of death. Whereas the New Testament is a book of life. Every person you read about in the Old Testament was a person who was living under the curse of death. And as you read the genealogies in Genesis chapter 5, there's one phrase that's very interesting. It talks about this character, and it ends, and he died. It talks about another character, and he died. It talks about another character, and he died, and he died, and he died, and he died. Sounds like a pretty morbid passage. In Matthew chapter 1, on the other hand, it also talks about genealogies, but the focus is not on death. The focus is on life. And the characters that are there, this character begat a son. He gave life to a son. And he gave life to a son. You see, the focus is on life rather than on death. Adam brought death upon all men. Jesus said, I am come that ye might have life and that ye might have it more abundantly. Another contrast between the Old Testament and the New is that the Old Testament was about the law of Moses, whereas the New Testament supersedes that law with a higher code of living. In the New Testament, what Jesus is presenting is not simply about action. You see, the Old Testament was about action. Do this, do this, do this. All the laws, all the ceremonials, ceremonies that they needed to go through and all the um, things were about certain actions. The New Testament, on the other hand, is about attitude that will determine our actions. The Old Testament was about conduct, how you behave. Thou shalt, thou shalt not. The New Testament is about character that determines our conduct. You see, it goes to a much higher code of living. The Old Testament is about behavior. The Old Testament is about the condition of your heart that determines your behavior. It's not about what people see and hear, 
but it goes to the depths and core of your being. So the New Testament is about a much higher code of living. So this is some of the context in which the Sermon on the Mount was given, introducing these new principles from Adam to Jesus, from death to life, from the law of Moses to a higher code of living. I'd like to move on to the second point. Who was this sermon preached to? Who was the targeted audience of this sermon? Who was Jesus addressing when he gave this teaching? Who did he expect would apply this message to their daily living? Well, there are several possibilities. Was he preaching to the Jewish nation in general? The Jewish nation was looking forward to a new earthly kingdom, and Jesus came to establish a new kingdom. They were looking forward to a revolutionary Messiah, and the teachings of Jesus were certainly revolutionary. He introduced things that were never thought of before. Or was it addressed to the Pharisees? He talks about the Pharisees in the sermon. The Pharisees seemed to be concerned with righteous living. They gave that appearance. And Jesus zeroed in on righteous living in this message. So was he addressing the Pharisees? Or what about the publicans and sinners? Jesus said that that is who he came to call to repentance. The publicans and sinners are the ones who need to repent. And this message certainly introduces the need for a change of lifestyle, a repentance. Or was Jesus preaching to the multitudes? In verse 1 of chapter 5, it says, In seeing the multitudes, he went up into a mountain. Are the multitudes who Jesus was addressing in this sermon? The multitudes were very interested in what Jesus was saying and in what he was doing. But were they committed to following him no matter what? Or was Jesus addressing none of these? Verse 1 says, And seeing the multitudes, he went up into a mountain. Typically speaking, why did Jesus go up into a mountain? Typically, it was to escape the multitudes and to be alone and to pray. Mark 6.15 gives an example of this. In this setting, the, the crowds were determined to make Jesus their king. They saw him as someone who could deliver them from the bondage in which they were living. And Mark 6.15 says, When Jesus therefore perceived that they would come and take him by force to make him a king, he departed again into a mountain himself alone. You see, Jesus generally went to a mountain to escape the multitudes. Think of the Mount of Transfiguration. Again, he went away to be alone with a select group of people. Now, even though the multitudes were continuously near Jesus, I do not believe that this message was addressed to the multitudes. They may have been welcome to listen in, and they may have benefited they may even have become better people because of it. 
But the ideals set forth in the Sermon on the Mount were simply out of their reach. The Sermon on the Mount, I believe, was and is a specific message for specific people. So again, we come back to the question, who are those people? This message, the Sermon on the Mount, was addressed to the citizens of the kingdom of heaven, a new kingdom that Jesus came to introduce. In this case, he started with the disciples, his disciples. It says, he went up into a mountain, and when he was set, his disciples came unto him, and he opened his mouth and taught them saying, I believe this sermon was addressed specifically to his disciples. A parallel passage in Luke chapter 6 indicates the same thing. It says, A great multitude of people out of all Judea and Jerusalem and from the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said... And then it goes into Luke's versions of the Beatitudes and a condensed version of the Sermon on the Mount, which Matthew gives here in more detail. So I believe that this Sermon on the Mount was given specifically to the people who are willing to be subjects of the heavenly kingdom, this kingdom that Christ came to introduce. You remember the Spartan race that we talked about earlier. The courses are designed to push the limits of human strength and endurance. But as I said, those races are voluntary. I don't think anyone is forced to run one of those races. They do so because they choose to do so. Who are the subjects of the heavenly king? It is people who choose to be his subjects. People who choose to follow and to surrender him. So again, I ask the question, what if? What if? You would stand up and say, count me in. I'm going to be a part of that number. I am willing to surrender anything to spare no cost to be a part of this kingdom. What if everyone that is here this morning would voluntarily surrender himself entirely to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, our Heavenly King. What if each one of us would take this sermon at face value and apply it wholeheartedly to our lives, no matter what? That's a question I asked myself this morning. What if? And I don't really know the answer to that question. I don't know what God would do in our lives. I don't know what all he wants to do. But I believe that is who this sermon is addressed to. The people who are willing to commit themselves to this Spartan commitment. To give up themselves in total allegiance to the king. Well, moving on in our introduction to the sermon, we looked at um, the targeted audience of the sermon. We looked at the context of the sermon. I'd like to look now at some of the themes that we find in the Sermon on the Mount. Just a few of them. And I want to differentiate between a theme and a subject. There is a difference between a theme and a subject. 
There are many subjects in the Sermon on the Mount. For example, in chapter 5, Jesus speaks on the subjects of anger, on the subject of lust, on the subject of adultery, on the subject of oaths, and many other subjects. He, he moves into a subject, he talks about that subject, he moves on to another subject, and he talks about that subject. A theme, on the other hand, is something that is woven throughout the sermon. And it may reappear at different times throughout the message. Now, as we move through this Sermon on the Mount in the upcoming months, we plan to address many of the subjects that Jesus addresses here. But it's more difficult to address a theme because a theme just appears here and it reappears here. Just a comment made here that brings our minds back to that theme. So that's why I would like to just address a few of those themes now to see how they reoccur through the sermon and to address them briefly. One of the themes that we see in the Sermon on the Mount is the kingdom of heaven. If you still have your Bibles open to the beginning of Matthew, I'd like you to just flip back a page or so. The kingdom of heaven was introduced by John the Baptist. In chapter 3, verse 1 and 2, In those days came John the Baptist preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent ye, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This was introducing something new. This was introducing the kingdom of heaven. To my knowledge, the kingdom of heaven is not mentioned in the Old Testament. So, John the Baptist was introducing this kingdom. Jesus reintroduced it in chapter 4, verse 17. From that time, Jesus began to preach and to say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. There's something new happening here. This is a theme that reoccurs. So John the Baptist introduced it. Jesus reintroduced it. But at the same time, Satan tried to intercept it. Notice chapter 4, verse 8. The setting here is the temptations of Jesus. Again, the, the devil taketh him up into an exceeding high mountain and showeth him, showeth Jesus, all the kingdoms of this world. Jesus came to introduce the kingdom of heaven Satan tried to sidetrack him by showing him the kingdoms of this world. And Satan is still doing that today. He is trying to distract us from the kingdom of heaven by showing to us the kingdoms of this world. In contrast to the kingdom of heaven. Now I mentioned that the kingdom of heaven is a theme that appears throughout the Sermon on the Mount. I'd just like to highlight a few of those. I'm going to um, skim over the Sermon on the Mount, and just read a few verses where this idea is mentioned. It's referred to repeatedly. The very first statement of the sermon, chapter 5, verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Verse 10, again. Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Of heaven. Verse 19, 
Whosoever therefore shall break one of these least commandments and shall teach men so, he shall be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whosoever shall do and teach them the same shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. And then the following verse, verse 20. For I say unto you that except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, ye shall in no case enter into the kingdom of heaven. Now in chapter 6, we don't see the exact words, the kingdom of heaven, but I think it is alluded to several times. In verse 10, in the Lord's Prayer, or what we call the Lord's Prayer, Jesus says, thy kingdom come. He may be referring again to the kingdom of heaven. In verse 13, again, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory. Verse 33, but seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And then in chapter 7, we see it again in verse 21. Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven. So you see why I'm saying this is a theme that reappears throughout this sermon. Not only in the Sermon on the Mount, but throughout the Gospel of Matthew. I find it interesting that the, the phrase, kingdom of heaven, is found 32 times in the New Testament. And all 32 times are in the book of Matthew. This was a favorite theme of Matthew, an expression that he believed. I, I believe it was a term that, that Matthew used which is synonymous, I believe, with what the other gospel writers used when they referred to the kingdom of God. Matthew wrote his gospel to, prevent, to present Jesus as king, the Messiah. The Jews were looking for a king, and Matthew was presenting to them the fact that this is the man, this is the king that you've been looking for. And he presents the idea of the kingdom of heaven. Now I'd like to ask the question, just what is the kingdom of heaven? And I don't have all the answers for that, I'm sure. That could be a message in itself. But a few things. What is the kingdom of heaven? First of all, it is the realm over which Jesus reigns as Lord. And if Jesus is Lord of your life, you are part of that kingdom. What a blessed privilege we have. So the kingdom of heaven, I believe, is the realm over which Jesus reigns as Lord. And when Matthew referred to the kingdom of heaven, and when Jesus referred to the kingdom of heaven, he was referring to that realm. The kingdom of heaven, I believe, is a set of values which differentiates us from those who are part of the kingdom of this, of this world. We have an entirely different set of values. And the Sermon on the Mount introduces those values. The kingdom of heaven, I believe, is an eternal perspective. As humans, our perspective tends to get pretty nearsighted, pretty earthly. But those who are part of the kingdom of heaven have their affection set on things above, not on things of this earth. What is the kingdom of heaven? It is an entirely new way of thinking and a new power for living. So the kingdom of heaven is one of the themes presented in the Sermon on the Mount. What is another one? God is our Father. I found it interesting that Dave 
touched on this subject a fair amount in the devotional this morning. And again, the concept of God being our Father is basically a concept that was introduced in the New Testament and pretty much introduced in the Sermon on the Mount. There are a few instances in the Old Testament where God is referred to as a father, but generally not as my father or our father. In the Old Testament, in the few instances in which he's referred to as father, it's more in a general way. As the father of all living or as the father of the nation Israel. And few, if any, men in the Old Testament would have dared to refer to God as his personal father. So Jesus is introducing a revolutionary concept here with the fatherhood of God. And that is why the Jews reacted so strongly to this idea that God is his father and that God can be our father. It was a foreign concept to them. But he hits that idea very strongly in the Sermon on the Mount. And again, I'm just going to point out some verses. I'll go through this uh, through the sermon here and just point out some of those verses where it refers to either us being God's children or as he being our father. Chapter 5, verse 9. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. Verse 16, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. This was a new concept. Chapter, or verse 45, still in chapter 5. Jesus talks about how we respond to our enemies, that ye may be the children of your Father which is in heaven, identifies us as his children, and him as our father. Verse 48, be therefore perfect, even as your father, which is in heaven, is perfect. Chapter 6, verse 1, take heed that you do not your alms before men to be seen of them, otherwise you have no reward of your father, which is in heaven. Chapter 4, thy father, which seeth in secret, shall reward thee openly. Verse 6, pray to thy father, which is in secret, and thy father, which seeth in secret, shall reward thee openly. Verse 8, your father knoweth what things ye have need of before you ask him. Verse 9, again, Jesus' prayer addresses God as father, our father, which art in heaven. Jesus seems to be mentioning this pretty frequently for a new idea, but there's more. Chapter 6, verses 14 and 15. If you forgive your trespasses, your heavenly Father will forgive your trespasses. If you don't, he won't. Verse 18. Again, referring to our Father. Verse 26. Still in chapter 6. Your heavenly Father feeds the birds. Your Father feeds the birds. Don't you think he's going to care for you? Verse 32. Your heavenly Father knows that ye have need of all these things. He knows your needs. Chapter 7, verse 11. If ye then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more shall your Father, which is in heaven, give good gifts? Do you see why I say this concept is a theme that reappears 
throughout the Sermon on the Mount. So, again, I ask the question, what does this mean? The idea of God being our Father, what does that idea represent? Well, I think the fatherhood of God represents several things. First of all, it represents accountability. You see, as children, we are accountable to our father, to our parents, to obey them. And if we do not obey them, we need to answer to them for our actions. So the fact that God is our father indicates that we are accountable to him and we will need to answer to him for our actions. But I'd like to go beyond this thing of accountability. It also represents a relationship. You see, a child and his father have a relationship. And this relationship is indicated by God's care for us. He talks about the birds. He says, are you not much better than they? If I care for the birds, don't you think I'm going to care for you? I'm your father. I care about you. What are you worried about? I'm going to take care of it. It represents his care for us. And then that, in turn, leads us to two things. It should lead us, first of all, to trust him. And it should also lead us to a desire to please him. So this concept of the fatherhood of God really is a rich concept. Talks about his care for us, our trusting him, our desire to please him. What is another theme in the Sermon on the Mount? The third theme I'd like to highlight is the theme of a higher level of living. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus calls us to something beyond that which was ever experienced before. And I'm going to just highlight again several verses, several statements. And you can just listen. I don't have the references for all these. But he says, Ye are the light of the world. You're supposed to be a light to the entire world. This is a higher level of living. Repeatedly in chapter 5, he says, Ye have heard what was expected of you before, but I say, he calls us to a higher level of living. He says that ye may be the children of your father. He calls us to a higher level of living. He asks the question, what do ye more than others if you do as the Gentiles do? You see, we're called to a higher level of living. Do not make it your goal to be seen of men. There's something higher. For after all these things do the Gentiles seek, but seek ye first the kingdom of God. You see, there's something higher. He says, enter ye in at the straight gate. And straight in this sense means narrow. Few there be that go in thereat. You see, we're called to something beyond what the multitudes are doing. Jesus is not calling us in the Sermon on the Mount to be an average person. He is calling us to something beyond, to a higher level of living. What if we would be willing to forsake the values of this world, the values that are so prevalent around us, the values that impress themselves upon us every day, and surrender to the higher calling and follow Jesus 
with everything that we have. Let's move on and look at the scope of the sermon. Just what exactly is this sermon? I've heard it referred to as Christ's political platform. You listen to the news, you hear people jockeying for position in the political race for the presidential election coming up here or down the road, and they present their platform. This is what I stand for. I've heard someone say this is what Christ stood for. What was the purpose Christ had for preaching it? Some people say that he was presenting the plan of salvation, that this is God's plan of salvation. This is a list of requirements to meet in order to reach heaven. I would respond to that by saying, who then can be saved? If this is a list of requirements that we need to meet in order to be saved, we're hopeless. We cannot reach these requirements. Some people say that it's a charter for world peace. If the nations of the earth would only follow these principles, we would have peace. If we could just convince the nations to follow the teachings of Jesus, this world could have peace. God says there is no peace for the wicked. The wicked are like the troubled sea when it cannot, cannot rest, whose waters cast up mire and dirt. We cannot subject these conditions on the world. Is it a prophecy for the future? There are other people who say, you know, what Jesus set forth in the Sermon on the Mount is simply unattainable in this life. So it really can't be considered to be applied to this life. It must describe some future time. Perhaps it describes the millennial kingdom, they say. Well, if that is so, why would Jesus teach our response to persecution in the Sermon on the Mount? Are we going to be persecuted in the millennium? I don't think this is a prophecy for the future. So what is the scope of this sermon? If it's not the plan of salvation, if it's not a charter for world peace, if it's not a prophecy for some future time, what is it? Well, I'd like to look at three things that it is. First of all, it is a divine message, a heavenly message. John Phillips makes a description which I thought was pretty um, picturesque, pretty interesting. And I'll, I'm taking from that description. He said, Jesus took the Mosaic law and passed it through the prism of his divine perspective and broke the light of the law into a rainbow of glorious application. You know, when light passes through a prism, it spreads out the different spectrums of light and we see a rainbow. He says what Jesus did, he took the Mosaic law, passed it through the prism of his divine perspective, and broke the light of that law into a rainbow of glorious application. He lifted everything from the earthly to the heavenly, from the natural to the spiritual, from the temporal to the eternal, and placed it far beyond all human reasoning. This message is a divine message. 
There is nothing in all the literature of the world that can compare to this sermon. This is a divine message. The sermon closes with the observation that the people were astonished at his doctrine because he taught them as one having authority. Why did he teach them as one having authority? Because he had authority. He had divine authority. It is a divine message. And along with that, I would like to say it's unattainable in human strength. We cannot attain salvation by holding ourselves accountable to this message. But as we are empowered by the Spirit, as we are born of the Spirit and empowered by the Spirit, He gives us the strength to live this message. It is a divine message. Furthermore, it is an eternal message. These teachings certainly look beyond the present. They look to the future, the future in this life, but beyond that to the next life. Jesus closed his sermon with the story of the man who built his house upon a rock and the man who built his house upon, a sand, upon the sand. The truth of this message is an enduring rock upon which to build your life. And I don't think Jesus is referring in this account simply to a house that is going to endure for your lifetime. I think he's talking about a house that is going to endure for eternity. When the things of this earth pass away, all those things that appeal to us, those things which we are tempted to invest our energy in, when they pass away, the teachings and principles of this sermon are going to last forever. Do you want a life that is enduring and eternal? If so, the Sermon on the Mount is for you. And furthermore, not only is it a divine message and an eternal message, it is also a personal message. Remember, this is a code of living for the followers of King Jesus. It's a message that he spoke specifically to his disciples, as we already indicated. But this sermon was recorded for the benefit of every disciple of Jesus, every follower of Jesus, down through the ages. And that, by the way, includes many of us here today. Does it include you? That, friend, is a question that you will need to answer. What if every one of us would receive this message as a personal message for us? That's what Christ wants it to be. I'd like to close with a challenge for you. Some of you like challenges of running a Spartan race or winning some tournament. I'm going to give you a challenge this morning, a very practical challenge. I plan to be looking at this Sermon on the Mount over the next coming months. I would like to encourage you to accept the challenge to memorize the Sermon on the Mount over the course of the series of these sermons. Those of you who will be, who will be quizzing next year will already be memorizing it, as well as nearly the first complete 10 chapters. 
So I hope that this study will be beneficial to you in helping you understand the passage, making it meaningful to you. And I'm really excited for the quiz passage this coming year. To have the opportunity to, to memorize this passage is remarkable. Now, I give you this challenge, and maybe you're saying, yeah, I can't do that. I can't memorize. It's too hard. Well, if you've ever run a Spartan race, I don't think there's any reason why you can't memorize this passage. Or if you can commit yourself to spending hours every week playing on a ball team, there's no reason why you can't memorize this passage. Maybe some of you are saying, well, I'm too old. I just can't memorize anymore. Well, maybe you have a point. If you've passed the 90-year mark, it might be coming difficult. But I don't think it's too hard for a 55-year-old, and I don't think it's too hard for most of us here. So I want you to think about that challenge. And if the challenge is too great, maybe you can make it a little bit smaller and choose a portion of it to memorize. Um, the next time I preach here, I may ask if you're willing to try to memorize at least a portion of it. So think about that. I think you will be hard-pressed to find a more valuable way to use your time, to invest your time. This sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, is a personal message, and it is for you.